Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello again. Uh, how's your week been? Have you been anywhere nice? The fridge maybe, or even the shed if you're lucky enough to have a garden. Anywhere fun? Uh, seeing as lockdown is continuing in many countries, I figured we'd keep the podcast that is not a podcast podcast going and invite someone else onto the show who is brilliant at what they do but mainly because I owe them big time for saving me money on a few holidays. So joining me for a catch-up this week is Formula One photographer, Mr. James Moy. Hello. Hello, James. I'm glad you can hear me because I am aware that my internet connection is not very good, but yours is beautiful. I can sort of hear you, but not see you. Perfect. Uh, that's exactly how you want it to be. That's how everyone hopefully gets it on this podcast. Exactly. That is not a podcast. Uh, now, firstly, do you have a drink with you? <laughs> I do. I've got a pint of bitter. Ah, very nice. Very British. Quite quickly, to be honest. (laughs) Well, I have a rum and ginger, which leads me into the holiday comment. Blimey. Uh, Because I should explain that you have a lovely, uh, what what do we call it? Uh, It's not a holiday villa, it's just a gorgeous house uh, on a lovely island called Barbados, which... Some of your friends have been lucky enough to visit when it's not full of holidaymakers. Uh, and so, yeah, thanks for that, basically. That's all I wanted to call you up and say. I was trying to keep that a secret. I was trying to keep that just our little secret, but now the world knows. That's all right. No one's listening to this. But actually, no, exactly. if, we're, <laughs> if we're serious, that it's good that you've got something like that. And I'm sure it's not uh, turning things over massively right now, but... What is this situation like for a photographer? Because from a journalist's point of view, right now I'm able to carry on working on certain things, but you need things to shoot. Um, basically, I haven't taken a picture since I came back from Australia. Um, all work has completely dried up. We went to Melbourne. I did, what, three days' work in Melbourne, turned around and came home again. Um, and because the sport has essentially stopped, we've stopped as well, which means there's nothing coming in money-wise. Um, I guess I'm in the same position as you in the fact that we've paid for quite a lot of our hotels and flights and a lot of the expenses had already gone out. Um, 
and we'd, we'd gone and done F1 testing and we'd gone to Australia and sort of just about to get the ball rolling, get the season started and then suddenly come to a, a grinding halt and, and here we are sitting around doing podcasts instead. <laughs> well, is, is this your first podcast? It is. Wow. But then I'm confused because you're saying it's not a podcast. No, it's not it, one. It, I, I just wanted to check that. Figure out. <laughs> okay, yeah. It is my first ever podcast. Well, uh, I'm sure well, nobody's going to listen to it anyway. Uh, you'll be amazed. The questions have been flying in. Um, and before we get onto those, I want right. to know what you've been doing in lockdown because a rumour has it you've been running. Well, but yeah, I was, I was going to say this will surprise you. Um, not only running, I'm hot and sweaty and drinking my pee too quick because I've just come back from a big bike ride. Um, so yeah, anyone that knows me will know that I'm not a runner and I'm not a cyclist and I pretty much do anything I can to avoid most forms of exercise. However, I thought I'd use um, these next few weeks, months, years, however long it's going to go on for, uh, basically to try and get a bit fitter. So I bought myself a bike. Um, I'm following Joe Wiley's Couch to 5K running thing. And I think, was it you that asked me to run 5K the other day? I'm, I'm almost there. Give it, give it another week and I'll be there. Um, so yeah, I've been doing that. Uh, what else have I been up to? I've, I've done what everyone else has done. I've sort of done bits of DIY and I've eBayed all of my old camera kit and I've lounged around and drunk too much and basically not done a lot. Well, that sounds like a normal day off for you anyway, doesn't it, between events? Well, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's dragging on. I mean, as as it is for everybody. I mean, you and I are not used to um, being at home for long periods of time. In fact, I think this is probably the longest I've probably ever been at home since I've done this job. Um, I, I, I was saying to somebody the other day, I've seen more of my village that I live in in the last five days than I have in the last 15 years that I lived it. And I, I've been going for long walks and kind of finding new things and chatting to people. And it, it's been brilliant, to be honest. I've, I've actually quite enjoyed it. But um, I would quite like to get going again. I'd quite like to earn a bit of money. Um, and some form of normality would be good. Well, hopefully that comes around soon. Um, and I don't think you're alone in wanting to get going again. Because I, I put it on uh, Reddit that we were going to do this podcast and just sort of see what fans were thinking and wanting to know and one is Mm. they are all itching for us to go racing again but two there's a lot of people interested in photography james this amazes me well (laughs) as they should be (laughs) um they've picked a bad time to be interested in it because they can't go out and take photos of formula one cars uh but you said you've sold your gear on ebay so um we had a question from a guy called wolf um who asked what is your favorite lens I know. Uh, they're all usernames, so some of them are strange, but uh, I'll try and get them right. They might get us in trouble. Uh, but he, wants, he or she wants to know what your favourite lens is, so I'm guessing it's one you haven't sold. Oh, um, yeah, the stuff I've sold is basically, um, I was about to say all the old knackered stuff, but obviously people who have just bought it on eBay, it's not knackered, it's top quality. Um, uh, no, it's, it's basically had a pretty tough life. Um, because you imagine we are working in the rain, the sun, the sand, the snow, covered in sun cream, covered in sweat. It gets smashed around in aeroplanes. It, it travels a lot. So the gear has a tough life. Um, and I do change it fairly regularly. Um, having said all of that, it tends to sit in a cupboard and not do a lot. 
and then an opportunity like this comes along and I suddenly stick it all on eBay and get rid of it. However, back to my favourite lens. Um, very difficult to pick one. Um, I probably travel to most races with about six lenses, probably. Everything from a sort of a 16 millimetre wide angle all the way through to about a 500 metre, a 500 millimetre um, telephoto, big, big kind of zoom lens. That is one that we probably use the most, a 500 mil. So if, if you're trackside and filling the frame with a car, that's your go-to lens. Um, if you're in the paddock doing more sort of portraiture, pit lane style pictures, you're probably on a 70 to 200 mil. So one of those two would probably be the go-to lens. Okay, well, there's definitely going to be some uh, guys and girls on listening to this podcast who sent these questions in that are going to go out like googling those and wishing that they'd yeah. have your ebay links um so because <laughs> the actual first question that came in someone wants you to tell them how to be the perfect photographer um but in the sense a guy called uh, i think it's a guy dog ryan 100 another catchy name uh, says what advice would you give to a person who has the knowledge skills and gear to do a really good job in motorsports photography and already has a backlog of thousands of photos but isn't sure what they need to do when it comes to getting noticed by, say, a publication. Sounds like he wants a job. <laughs> um, Are you hiring? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you'd be surprised how many people I get almost weekly asking uh, for a, either a bag carrier role or to come and fly around the world with me or generally how to get in. Um, it's a tricky one. I mean, when I did it, the obvious way was to go to an agency and start at the lowest of the low and work your way up the ladder and shoot national motorsport and learn your trade, meet the people. And eventually you get to formula one. And then I went off and worked for myself. Um, and then you do the whole sort of self-employed thing and you find your clients and you look after your clients and you create a business out of it. If he believes he's got the skill and the kit, um, the only thing stopping him is getting into races, I suppose. Um, and so, as I said, you sort of start at grassroots level, go to your local go-kart track, go to your local stock car meeting, where it's a lot easier to ask for permission, ask for a media pass, get trackside, offer something in return. You're going to have to probably give your pictures away for free to get in in the first place. But make a real purpose of going there. Make sure you, you then follow it up. Make sure you try and sell some pictures to drivers or to sponsors and get your... Get, basically get your little black book of phone numbers together and then eventually you will start naturally to go up the ladder. You can't just jump in, in into F1. You can't just suddenly arrive at a race, stand at the first corner, take your first F1 pictures and expect to A, get something that's good and B, make a business out of it. Um, and doing what we do and flying around the world as we do, which is all funded by us, is obviously not a cheap way of going to work i mean most people get on a bus and go to work we're getting on an airplane 20 odd times a year um and funding it all ourselves so it's not as simple and as glamorous as people sort of figure it out um yeah that's that's probably the only way of doing it now because the agencies have sort of dried up a bit and they, they're not really taking on young juniors in the way that they used to mm. You've just lied to everyone, though. Did you just say 20 flights a year or 20 times a year? I thought we should focus actually well, on what you do. 20, 20 F1 races a year, yeah. Yeah, I think you do more than just F1, don't you? 
Yeah, I do um, all of the WEC as well. So working with Toyota on their Le Mans and WEC project. So yeah, that's a whole nother load of races and testing and other photo shoots. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think last year was 80 something flights in a year. So that, that's about the average. And who are the clients that you can say at least uh, in Formula One that you work for? Um, we work for, and I say we because there's, there's four of us that go to every race. So um, we are currently working with Renault, Williams, Rolex, Infinity, um, Carbon Champagne, um, and various then websites, editorial outlets, newspapers, picture agencies, ad agencies, PR companies, you name it. It, it. It's essentially, I mean, in the old days, we used to make more money than we do now from newspapers and magazines. That has dried up a little bit. Um, but then in response, we're working more with sponsors and promoters and governments and race hosts and it, anybody that's in need of imagery, basically. Yeah. Well, that brings me on to a good question actually we had from someone called Ede Flozada. Catch again. Um, saying, could I ask you about your photo agency? How did, you, how did you set it up? Why did you set it up? What's it like having and managing one? And how do you approach your clients? Good question. Um, basically we need to be an agency to compete. If you imagine at every F1, it's the big agencies in the world are there, your Gettys, your Reuters, your APs, AFPs, they are there en masse with lots of photographers with a worldwide network to distribute their pictures. We are much smaller and much more bespoke and specific to F1. So we've got to compete on a similar sort of level by having men on the floor, basically. And so there's four of us that go to every race so that we can spread ourselves around. We've got the quantity of pictures that we need in order to basically be on the same level as the Gettys and the Reuters of this world. How that then works, it's, I mean, it, it's, it's the four of us and we all, we're all mates and we all um, chip in and we, we have our own clients individually, but we all kind of pool our pictures together so that we make sure that we've got enough on-track action, portraits, guest photography, whatever the, the the requirements are um and that it's basically the way it has to be um i would say probably numbers of photographers in f1 are probably starting to decline a bit over the years as i mentioned earlier it's so expensive to just to go to work before you make a penny um and i think that puts a lot of the sort of part-timers off or people who were just coming and doing maybe half of the season, who are therefore then losing their clients. Whereas if we're attending every race and we've got a contract in place, and our clients know that they're going to get pictures every week, and it's a lot easier. Yeah, I can second that. Uh, as a freelance journalist, it's the same thing. You've got to invest a lot of money, and mm. I don't even have to worry about the kit that you guys have to worry about, but to just go with a laptop and write mm. words and maybe speak into the camera that someone else has brought, um, you have to yeah. be at every yeah. race. So it's, it's damn expensive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, we, we obviously know the advantage. As a photographer, you have to be there because you're, you're taking pictures of an event that is happening there. The journalist side of things is obviously slightly different. I mean, there is, there is a zillion websites on the, on the internet that you can go and read about Formula One, but very few of them are actually on site doing their own interviews, finding their own news. And that, that's, that's the real kind of line in the sand where the, the quality comes through and hopefully then your viewer figures and ad revenue and all of the rest of it. 
Yeah, hopefully. Um, now, I'm going to do this a bit backwards because you've mentioned who you um, work with now and the agency that you set up and told some people how to get in. But how did you get into uh, motorsport photography? How did you get your professional break? And the other question, this is from someone called Daniel Coyle, is what are the first things you look out for when you get to a circuit you've never been before? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I guess my dad got me into photography in the first place. He was interested in motorsport, interested in photography. I remember he always put a camera in my hand as a kid on holiday or whatever. Um, and I, I, I had a passion for photography ever since I can remember, really. Um, I was very lucky in the school that I went to, had really good darkroom facilities. And I spent a lot of my time processing film and playing with light and just learning how, how photography works, basically. Um, and then I basically badgered every agency in the land to give me a job. Um, the big ones at the time were LAT and Sutton, Sutton Images. And I eventually managed to get a job at Sutton Images. I think my job title was Junior Darkroom Assistant. So I had Junior and Assistant in my title. <laughs> it was bottom of the ladder. Um, and I did my time in the darkroom and I did my time sort of doing Formula 3 and British touring cars and eventually got to do some F1 testing. And that was in the days when there was a whole separate test team that were flying around the world on top of all of the F1 races. So I spent a good year and a half, two years just doing F1 testing, which was great. Because I was flying to these kind of weird and wacky circuits in the middle of nowhere, great light, great access. Um, sometimes I was the only photographer there um, and, and basically learnt. And then eventually I'd, I'd done every F1 race from, I think the year 2000 or 2001 onwards. It's a long old time. Second part of the question, what was it? I've forgotten. Uh, it was, what is the first thing you look out for when you go to a circuit you've never been before? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, they don't come up hugely often, do they? I mean, in, just in the last 10 years, we've had, we've had quite a few new ones. But before that, it, it was mainly all of the kind of classic Europeans. So um, if we were to go to a new race, we'd certainly go out a day earlier and we'd walk the track and we'd recce photography positions where the light would be. Um, where we think the backgrounds would be and where we think the action would happen, basically. Um, we've, do, we've done it quite a lot before, and obviously these new circuits tend to come with uh, big high fences and lots of runoff, which makes our life a bit more difficult. But, um, I mean, I'm just trying to think some of the new tracks, something like Abu Dhabi or Singapore. I mean, Singapore's a weird one because it can almost change by the year. So we almost recce that every year we go back. Same with Baku. So those street circuits that aren't permanent, it's, it's well worth almost every year going back and having a full day of sort of figuring out where we're going to go, where we think the sun might be setting or where we think the overtakes might happen. And, and we, we do sit down on a Sunday morning and we, we have a plan between the four of us as to where we're going to stand and which corners we're going to go to um, based on our basically guessing or experience of, of where we think the best pictures are going to happen. Yeah, and I guess because a, a Grand Prix circuit's massive, isn't it? Like, it's a lot of area to cover. And it means you can eat and drink because you've got yeah. calories. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it builds up a thirst each evening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was going to say, I mean, it, just because of the sheer size of F1, 
it, it is slightly different to most other sports, but you do know sort of where the action is going to happen. I mean, if you're a football photographer, any tackle or penalty or fight or kick or whatever celebration can happen anywhere in that field. At least in F1, you sort of know that the car is supposed to hit an apex or hit a piece of curbing. Occasionally, we know it goes wrong, and that's when your, your reactions take over. And, and, and if a car goes flying off or flying in a direction you're not expecting, that's where the skill of a photographer comes. Um, I think, I'm not saying it's easy, but at least we do have some idea of where the car is going to be. Now, that's going to lead me on to something that I know the answer to, but I think uh, others will find quite entertaining. Uh, it's not about you, actually. It's about one of your colleagues. Um, Laurent Charnier, I believe, a fellow photographer, and a big crash at Melbourne. Can you talk us through what, Never you, heard of it. what you do when you see a big crash unfolding in front of you and, and what Laurent did uh, in 2016, I think, at turn three? What was the crash at Melbourne? I can't, 2016, remind there was, me. Well, there was, there was, you could choose one of two cars to follow. And he chose. Ah, uh, yes, yes, yes. You're you're talking the Alonso Esteban Gutierrez crash, right? Okay, yeah, got you. Um, I mean, as sort of just hinted to, it's it's all going well when the cars are sticking on the track. The minute something odd happens, you have to react to it, and it's amazing how your hand-eye coordination does take over. And it, it, the camera is sort of an extension of our hands and our eyes, and it is phenomenal. Um, quite often a crash happens in front of you and you, you think you missed it, and then you look back at the pictures on the back of the camera and actually you've got it, um, purely because your, your hands are taking over. However, the instance you're talking about <laughs> was um, Fernando and Esteban colliding at turn three, four, in Melbourne, um, and Laurent was there, my colleague, absolutely dead head on with the right lens in the right place to capture it, and sadly followed Esteban rather than Fernando. And as we all know, with hindsight, the more impressive role impact picture was Fernando barrel rolling through the gravel and ending up in a heap on the side and climbing out. But, I mean, you can't, you can't put any blame on, on that. I mean, I probably would have done the same myself. It happens in a split second and you follow one car, and especially a moment like that where the two cars split and they're not both in the same frame, you're either going to be the hero or you're not. And in, in that case, we, we missed that picture. But there's so many other examples where we, we have lucked in, I suppose, a little bit or... Um, you've been in the right place at the right time and something's happened straight in, away in front of you and you're at the right exposure, you're at the right shutter speed, you're on the right lens. It, it all comes in to play. Um, yeah, the crashes are a funny one because as, as much as we try and predict them, you, you never really can. Yeah, um, but like you say, it's also all about being in the right place at the right time for those. And to get to the right place, we have a question here actually. Um, where soulwax.info asks, um, he says, or she said, uh, at Spa, I saw these minivans driving next to the circuit to drop photographers off during the race. How does that work? Do all photographers have to decide where they want to stand before the race, or can they just hop on and off these minivans? Good question. Never been asked that before. Um, yeah, if you are attending a European race, you'll see the Mercedes vans with all of the F1 logos on them. Um, and they go to every European race and they travel on the perimeter roads, dropping off photographers and picking up photographers. 
Now, obviously, that works better at some races than others. Um, and Spa is a particularly difficult one just because of the length of the track. So by the time you jump in the minibus, uh, say you're going from Eau Rouge back to the media centre, um, it can be a 20, 25-minute lap around the track, picking up, dropping off other people. So um, some races it works really well and we can get around easy. Um, others, you generally tend to walk it. Um, and nine times out of ten, the minibus is never there when you want it. Um, I, I think we're probably doing on average about... 18 20k probably over a race day something like that um just walking walking the paddock and then obviously we're going doing things like driver's parade and then the grid and then walking out to our corners working the circuit and then heading back to the podium a couple of trips up and down to the media center and yeah that's about sort of 18 20k in a day so um carrying all of that kit it's um yeah keep keeps us keeps us well thirsty as i said earlier yeah, and this is why James Moy's uh, calves are huge. Um, but I'll let other people find out. I'm getting bigger with the cycling. <laughs> I was going to say, cycling and running, you can only run 5k and you walk 20k yeah. a day. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, building up to it. No, I, I admire that. Do admire that. And that's talking distances, but I've got a question from TV in black and white who says, how many photos do you usually take on average during an F1 weekend? And what criteria do you have for selecting which ones make it to publications or social media? Uh, uh, figures wise, uh, again, it's very dependent on the race. Um, something like Monaco will shoot way more than somewhere like China. Um, just because there are more pictures available. Um, I would guess we're probably taking, it's fairly open, but I'd say between sort of 10 and 20,000 pictures in a weekend, something like that. Um, and, and we're probably slimming that down to 2,000 something like that. So, I mean, the editing process, um, we, we actually employ a digital editor. So there's a guy that edits and selects all of our pictures. So all four of us are firing images at him. Um, and he actually works remotely. So he's, he's UK based, but he's working on our time zone. Um, and, and he has to sit there and select all of the images, edit them, and then distribute them and upload them to our clients, portals, websites, social media, whatever the the end result is um so yeah i mean the actual process is is a case of he is viewing every single image we shoot so he's flicking through and so for example i've taken a, a portrait of lewis and there's 10 frames he has to pick the best frame out of those 10 so he's flicking through and maybe the sixth frame is the nicest composed or where he's smiling or pulling a facial expression or whatever it is he then has to select that picture and he's probably flicked through those 10 photos in half a second and selected the one he wants and then he moves on to the next portrait and it's it's a very very quick process um mainly dictated by the speed that our clients want the pictures um we're now sending live from trackside so we're connected to a local um, network and we're sending images from trackside that essentially from the minute we've taken the picture can appear online less than a minute later in full resolution captioned in the right place and searchable for anyone in the world to come and download so it's changed massively over the years from when i used to take it on a roll of film 
wait until Sunday, fly home, process it, put it in an envelope and then send it to a client, I don't know, out in Japan or whatever. And then two weeks later, they'd print it in their magazine. What's happening now is um, five minutes after the podium, um, clients are phoning up saying, where are the pictures? So we, we've got to be on the pace with it. All of the other agencies are doing the same. So it's, um, it's all about getting your pictures out quickly as well now. Has it made your job more stressful then because it's that much quicker yeah. and it's time <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's longer days. It's less time in the pub. It's, um, it's many, many more hours at the circuit. You imagine, imagine in the days of film, um, the minute it got dark, we went home um, because there basically weren't any more pictures to take. Now, we can shoot all the way up until it's dark and then we've got the entire day's selection of pictures to edit and go through. Um, so yeah, the, the days are long, the quantities of what we're sending out are yeah, just astronomical. I mean, I, I remember going to something like a Barcelona F1 test session in the early days, digital, and we'd be lucky if we sent one or two pictures a day and we were sitting on an ISDN line and it would take 25 minutes for a picture to send and then it would disconnect. And, give it another go now we're, we're, I mean, we're sending thousands and thousands of pictures um basically because the demand is there um and, and websites and social media are using pictures that were taken minutes ago it, it's uh it's crazy i mean that actually leads into another question then from a guy called spookx um who says what are some of the challenges when shooting f1 and car racing and and is it the, the technical side of actually trying to take the photo or is it everything that goes on around it um, I suppose it's like any job. If you do it all day every day um, and you practice it lots, you get quite good at it. Um, and then I mean, there is obviously a technique. Um, there is also an inherent part of decent photographers that have an eye for a photo. Um, you could have all of the skill in the world, but if you can't see a picture, you're going to struggle. Um, what are the, the tricky bits of it are, oh, I don't know. It's, it's more on the business side of things, keeping relationships, um, negotiating contracts. There's a lot of competition. I mean, there's, there's probably 50, 60 photographers that do every race and we're all in competition against each other. And so you've got to not only be better than them, you have to be more personable than them. You have to be good value. And you have to make sure that the client is happy and therefore the service has to be decent as well. So it's not a case of just turning up and being the best photographer. Um, if you're going to make a business out of it, all of those aspects have to come together, basically, as a, as a whole package. Yeah, well, I can attest to uh, Moisey being um, an approachable guy because right now, like no one can see this, obviously, because we're not doing it on video. But he's sat in a, a lovely office room with some really old school Monaco posters in the background. And it's a room that I know because I have slept in that room after parties <laughs> at the house these, after these, the these British Grand Prix. Used to be on the wall of my dad's office. They, they are they're not original Monaco posters, but they are they are lovely. And I've. I've, I've kept them from his office they're very cool. now they're on very the cool yeah they're, they're they're very cool um but yeah you, you you tend to get quite a lively house don't you you're not a million miles from silverstone and british grand prix yeah quite lively yeah. in my household um yeah it, it's one of the perks or downsides to the british grand prix I'm, I'm probably less than 10 kilometers away from silverstone so um i tend to hope 
lots of uh, mates and colleagues. It helps that I live opposite a couple of pubs and a good Indian restaurant. So, um, yeah, British Grand Prix are a long days and quite um, alcohol fueled, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's because you're such a sociable guy and that's why you're on this uh, podcast it's not a podcast right now I, highly highly professional as well and turn up at six o'clock in the morning and get the job done i mean that is true and this is something that amazes me about photographers is the stamina you guys have to be out so late and be up so early looking so fresh and being able to do a full 20 hour day on the back of that i genuinely don't know how you do it well i'm, I'm glad you say that it's it's not always the case but hey <laughs> um well but part of that is you've got to got got to have relationships with not just uh clients but you know the drivers and the talent in this sport so another question comes in from someone called gosba who says say hi to james for me so i think they know you but good luck knowing that based on the username um, gosba g-o-z-b-a okay could be patrick gosling possibly oh, oh wow well, if, if that's right. A motor GP photographer who's um, now gone on to do lots of road car photography. Could be, could be him. Ah, well, if it is, then um, good work deciphering it. Uh, if it's not, then sorry for getting you wrong, whoever it is who's asking this question. But what they ask is, uh, they'd love to know more about the drivers. How do they react to the press, uh, both written from my point of view, but also photographers from yours? Are they willing to participate? Uh, and who are your favourite drivers to work with? Good question. Um, I doubt that is Gozer because he will know the answer to that because he's many working with drivers. Um, yeah, it, it's it's an interesting thing to consider. Um, sort of as I referred to earlier, I've I've come up through the ladder. I've worked with some drivers when they were down in the junior categories, and I've sort of followed their career as my career has progressed, and we've become more matey. Um, that's the easy side of things. So pe people like um, Jensen, I was photographing when he was in Formula 3 and I was in Formula 3. And then we both arrived into F1 at about the same time. And the, those sort of relationships are fairly natural. It's the ones that um, occur more regularly now, as in um, it's either drivers that I work with. So if we're working with some of the teams, we spend quite a lot of time directly in the company with those drivers. So for example, at the moment, we're spending a lot of time with Danny Rick and Esteban um, and get on very well with them. They, I hope, appreciate that we do a fairly professional job and we, we don't upset them and annoy them too often. So therefore they're, they're happy to come and um, pose in front of our camera or essentially do what we ask. Um, it, it's interesting when you mention how they act with journalists because I, it is very different. Um, and I guess a driver is always a bit wary that you guys are after a story. Um, whereas they pretty much trust us. Um, and we are, we are privy to quite a lot, especially in the early part of the season. Um, we do a lot of sort of um, studio shoots and preview photography before the season gets going. And so I'm, I'm normally the first person to see the car's livery, for example, or the driver's new overalls and new sponsors or new haircuts or whatever it is. Um, and, and we do have to keep quite a lot of things under our hat until we arrive at the first race and then it's, it's out in the open for the public. But yeah, I, I've, I've always had good relationships with drivers. I've, I've worked with good ones, more difficult ones. Some are an absolute pain in the ass, but most of the ones I've worked with are, are pretty decent guys. They, they realize that we're there doing a job in the same way that they are and, um, and they're sort of willing to get on and make our lives easy as long as their lives are easy. 
Yeah, you're right. I think that they're more wary of journalists. Um, Some get it. I think some see where there's a line and can feel comfortable that if they bump into us at an airport or something that we're not there chasing a story. But um, the flip side is some don't and you do feel like a very cold reaction. I mean, we were on a flight back, weren't we, from Australia and um, George Russell joined us for, well, he he drank water, but joined us in the bar. Um, And very chatty. So that sort of thing is nice when drivers can be that relaxed because we're all in the same world. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, and and a lot of the drivers I I've obviously worked with for twenty plus years. I mean, I I photograph Jos Verstappen, and now I'm photographing his son. I mean, it it's gone a full generation, and I'm still here doing it. So there's 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 longevity to it, but there's also sort of the natural part of creating relationship. You're not going to get on with everybody. That's that's life. Um, but we are in the same sport. We're in the same arena. We spend a lot of time with each other, as you say. We. We are on the same aeroplanes. We're in the same hotels. It is only natural that we do all start chatting and, and, and friendships can be done, but also on a sort of a professional level as well. Yeah. Who, who, any that you'd say you were particularly close to or that you would count as mates? I, I think probably closest over time is Nico Hulkenberg. Nico and I get on very well um, on, a, on a matey level away from F1. We, we can talk families and um, holidays and, and stuff away from the sport. So Nico was one. Um, Esteban, Esteban's great. Worked with him at Force India and now again at Renault. So um, yeah, very much enjoy his company. Um, yeah, some of the older ones I worked with. Um, let me think. I can tell you who the nightmares were. Um, I will take that. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, I. I'll put it this way. My, my Yano, Trulli, Ralph Schumacher era at Toyota wasn't my favourite. Um, <laughs> right. <laughs> Mr. Albers wasn't the easiest to work with. Um, but yeah, no, <laughs> other good ones. I, I've always gotten well with Kimmy, to be honest. Kim, Kimmy and I um, first met when he tested a Formula Ford at Donington. It must have been about 99 or 2000. And then I sort of came up the ladder with Kimmy a bit so I don't get a lot out of him but there is a, a mutual respect there that we're, we're both still around yeah well I've got two questions on Kimmy actually one was you put a picture on your Instagram which is at f1 photographer because you've been going through your archives uh, and you were yeah. the guy that snapped him doing some weird commercial in his first season yeah that was an amazing picture and, and a picture that you just wouldn't get nowadays of Kimmy so I was I was at uh, Valencia testing years and years ago Kimmy was it was, I think, I think it may have been his first run in the Sauber ever. Um, and in lunch break, he sort of came out to photograph and film a, a TV commercial. And I've got this picture of him lying in the long grass with a sort of a, a straw hanging out of his mouth and a hanky knotted on his head. And I, I never saw the the advert once it aired, but um, yeah, it was it was quite a unique, funny picture of him. Um, there's been quite a few over the years. I'll, I'll try and dig out some more actually, because there's. The, some of the behind-the-scenes stuff now is more interesting than just the on-track on cars and drivers sort of pictures. So I'll try and show you um, a bit more of those kind of pictures. But yeah, Kim, Kimmy and I have had a few few funny moments. Well, there's an FIA Monaco that I'll tell you one day, but probably not on here. <laughs> well, I was about to ask for that actual story. I don't know if you're able to, but no, part of no, the questions no, no. that people are saying are, are what stories were you not able to publish at the time but can be shared now? So oh, that one we've got to wait on. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, God. Um, I should have had pre-warning on this question. Um, 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 what can I not share? There's quite a lot I can't share. 
Um, <laughs> I'm just chuckling, kind of thinking them in my own head. Uh, no, I'm not, I'm not even going to come up with anything for you because I <laughs> only incriminate myself. So professional. <laughs> Give it three more weeks of lockdown, and we'll get him. We'll yeah. get him back on, and he'll tell us everything. <laughs> Another beer, and I might, I might start to tell you more than I should. Oh yeah, I'll pause this so you can go and get another drink. Um, well, <laughs> off the back of that though, there's a lot of people that were asking about uh, the drivers, but this is quite a clever question actually, and I've got to get this name right. Uh, Sisyphus Rexicus asks, "Have you ever been asked to delete a photo by a driver or team?" Hmm. Good question. Um, 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 um. There's a couple of uh, no, I don't think I have ever in. Well, yes, I have. And, and the teams that we work for have every right to do so. Um, they are essentially briefing us, uh, telling us what they want and giving us access. So if, for example, we're photographing in their factory and we're photographing anything with telemetry screens or bits of car or, I don't know, manufacturing, um, they're not going to want that shown. And it, they, they generally tend to sort of screen it before it goes out just to make sure that the technical director's happy. So, yes, those type of pictures we are... Um, we are sort of scrutinised over. Um, I suppose that there's, there's one sort of semi-relates. We, we used to go to Fiorano, um, which is the Ferrari test track, and it's a definite no-go area. You're not allowed in. There's big high fences. Um, but we used to go every single year to photograph the first running of the new Ferrari. So it would be in early February, normally snowy and freezing cold. And the first time I was ever sent out there by Sutton Images, they said, oh, just, just go and get a ladder and um, point your lens over the fence and, and get pictures of the, the first lap of the, the new car. So I, I went to the kind of um, B&Q equivalent in Italy and bought a ladder and stuck it in the back of my hire car and put it up against a bit of fence that I thought I could see the track from. And the ladder wasn't high enough, so then I had to go back to the B&Q and get an even bigger ladder. And then eventually, I, I, I was joined by a couple of thousand people. So all of the locals come out. They all know it's happening. Hordes of photographers. Everybody's up on their ladders, all with big lenses, all pointing them over the fence. So although we weren't told not to shoot there, we probably shouldn't have been there. But it, it was one of those sort of um, unwritten Italian things in life that... Um, the Tifosi turnout and, and watch the first laps of the new Ferrari. And I, I then went back a few years after that. And by that point, you know exactly which hole in the fence to go through and which bit of hedge that you need to duck out of. And yeah, they, they were good fun days, actually. Espionage, I like it. Um, no wonder Ferrari get worried about what people are trying to look at. But um, so we've got, we've got just two more um, that we'll, we'll throw in here before I try again on some... Um, naughty stories that Moy's trying not to tell uh the first one is from maldonaton 17 who is saying uh, as a relatively new photographer who likes to take a few shots when they go to events and they're a huge motorsport fan one kind of photos i really enjoy are the panning shots i've been trying it on practice uh, on local motorsport related events but i've only managed to do it on the automatic sport mode any advice on what key settings i have to take into consideration to do panning shots yes absolutely um, the sport mode that you mentioned, I guess, is uh, shutter priority. So that's where you're, you're selecting the shutter speed and the camera will select the aperture. So how much light is essentially coming into the lens. Um, if you want to freeze a car, 
which you don't essentially when you're panning, but uh, to freeze a car, you're looking at 500th of a second, a thousandth of a second. What we want to do with a pan is slow that right down. So we're going down to sort of a 60th of a second or 125th of a second. And the technique is essentially that you lock onto the car in the viewfinder, follow it as smooth as you can as it passes in front of you, and then hit the shutter as the car sort of fills the frame at the point that you've focused on the track. Now that sounds fairly simple, but it's, it's all about the practice and it, it does take years to perfect it. Um, it helps if the corner or the bit of straight that you're photographing is at an even speed. If they're braking or accelerating, it's a lot harder. Um, but it is, it's all about practice. Um, I remember colleagues who used to go and stand out on a roundabout and practice on road cars. You look a bit silly, but um, it, it's the technique that you want. Go, go and stand next to your local dual carriageway and, and stand there for an hour practicing on cars going past. It's, um, it's a technique that we use daily. Um, it basically means that the car is in focus and the back, black, uh, sorry, the background goes all out of focus to show the movement in the car. But yeah, it, it's purely down to technique and practice. So there you go, get out and find a roundabout. Um, and then the final one then, you've got all this great advice, um, clearly very skilled. Uh, I'm sucking up a lot here. But no, the final question is from Kriker1890, who says, what's favourite photo that you've taken and where should they frame it? Oh, my word. Um, I have been asked this question quite a lot, and I'm afraid to disappoint, but I can't tell you one favourite photo. Um, I, I've I, I don't have any. Have you? Yeah. What's that? Um, you obviously not, not in Mexico. No, not the one I took in Mexico. Ah, oh, this is a good story. Let's do that first. Um, so, because uh, this is a question I was going to ask. Uh, I'll ask the question first. How annoying is it when journalists and their iPhones either get in your way or take the same photo as you and then just stick it on Twitter for fun and completely ruin you getting a great, great one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris, Chris is referring to us standing next to each other in the section in Mexico and was it Valtteri came in with his brakes on fire? No, Nico, it was back in 2016. Oh Nico, it was Nico, okay. Um, and yeah, the brakes were on fire and he came in right next to us, a couple of meters away, flames pouring out of the, the wheel and um, Chris was in the hole with his iPhone and actually managed to capture a very nice picture of it. But yes, it's, it's very infuriating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not only that, Lewis is then in the background just leaving the stadium section and they were in the title fight right then um and it did frame it very nicely all right, all right. i got lucky didn't i very lucky but yeah the problem was i was like isn't that cool tweet yeah. and then you come back to edit and have this great photo editorially that's obviously far far better than what i'd done but everyone had already seen it because i tweeted it out and and when you think there's there's fifty thousand people sitting in that stadium all doing the same they've all got an iphone on them they're all taking pictures we cannot be everywhere and I'm, I'm fully aware that um, quite often some of the best vantage points are in the grandstand. You'll see us pros at quite a lot of the races going up into the grandstands and getting vantage points. So don't think just because you're not trackside, you can't get great pictures. We're actually choosing to come and join you in the grandstands because we know that's where the good pictures are. I like that. Although I think this picture that I'm thinking about uh, that I was going to say is one of uh, my favourites that you've taken is at Spa, trackside at Eau Rouge in the snow in WEC. I think it was Fernando oh, leading yeah, for Toyota. Yeah, yeah, that's one of those moments that you um, you probably only see once or twice in a, in a career. So, um, yeah, I was stood 
uh, it was the start of the race, wasn't it? I just mm. I'd run grid. I got up to Eau Rouge, which is a hell of a hike with all of your kit. Um, managed to get in a window, and then the heavens opened and it started snowing. And it wasn't just like bits of snow; it was a proper snowstorm, and the cars were still going around. So yeah, a, a unique picture to have cars actually racing in heavy snow. Um, yeah, probably one that won't be recreated for quite a while, actually. Yeah, no, good choice. Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I do like that one. And I'm thinking of putting it on my wall. If um, if this podcast that's not a podcast podcast gets James enough publicity that he lets me steal the print. But yeah, I mean, that's we've been over three quarters of an hour. And most people are probably um, bored or drunk if they're doing what we're doing and having uh, a drink with this. Uh, so we'll wrap it up there. But Moisey, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, no, good, good set of questions there. Happ- happily do it again. Yeah, well, I tell you what, we, we probably will at some point. I'll, um, I'll let everyone know that sent questions in that they got them answered. Hopefully they listen. Hopefully um, you've enjoyed that. Apologies if any of the uh, technical quality was a bit down, but that's my end rather than Moisey's end. His has been beautiful. Uh, to have a look at his pictures, uh, at F1 Photographer on Instagram and at James Moy, I think, on Twitter. I think you're right, yes. Yeah, and he's posting lots of archive pictures at the moment, like topless Michael Schumacher playing oh, tennis, okay. so... I'll try and do two or three a day going forwards from now onwards. So yeah, get get you fixed there. Um, it's all very cool. And thank you very much for your time listening. Thank you very much, Moisey, for joining. And probably be back next week, hopefully with a slightly better internet connection. Till then, stay safe, stay at home, and speak to you all soon. Sports Social Podcast Network. I'm at the nail salon. I'm at the grocery store. I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Wait, she's at the nail salon and the grocery store? I'm at the combination nail salon and grocery store. Groceries through Instacart delivered to my door. I don't have to choose between acrylics and the grocery store. 